Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics. And so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. He turned on the radio and listened as the DJ introduced a song by Abby Lincoln. Bosch had never heard it before, but he immediately liked the words and the woman's smoky voice. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line Podcast. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While there, please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. Now that all that bullshit's out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 17 through 20 of The Last Coyote. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explored how John 316 shaped chapter 13 through 16 of The Last Coyote. And today, we will be taking a deep dive into chapter 17 through 20. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens, so please proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast. Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. As we begin this episode, we see Bosch in therapy session with Dr. Noho. During this session, Dr. Noho and Bosch begin to explore the relationship between Bosch and his mother. Bosch opens up and reveals painful memories concerning his childhood 
Bosch further explains that he admires his mother, Marjorie Lowe, and the lengths that she went through to shield him from the fact that she was a prostitute. Back at home, Bosch opens up the box containing the evidence concerning the murder of his mother, Marjorie Lowe. During this viewing, Bosch makes a number of investigative revelations, including the lack of blood on the garments worn by Marjorie Lowe. Bosch also notes that the instrument used to kill his mother had been purchased by him when he was a little boy. Feeling antsy, Bosch takes a drive and finds himself at a fundraiser hosted by Mattel. Acting on an unexplained impulse, Bosch enters the party and pretends to be Lieutenant Pounds. While there, Bosch comes face to face with Mattel and puts in motion a ruse to get a measure of Mattel. Bosch hands a waitress a news clip concerning Johnny Fox and requests that she gives it to Mattel immediately. Before giving the clip to the waitress, Bosch writes on the bottom of it, what prior work experience got Johnny the job? As the waitress gives Mattel the news clip, Bosch witnessed Mattel being shaken, which he takes as his clue to leave the party. The next day, Bosch received a call from the fingerprint technician, Brad Hirsch. Hirsch informs Bosch that the comparison prints didn't match anyone in the APHIS system. After the phone call with Hirsch, Bosch decides he needed a badge to continue his investigation into his mother. Responding to the Hollywood division, Bosch proceeds to steal Lieutenant Pound's badge, promising himself that once the mission is finished, he will return it promptly. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 17 through 20 of The Last Coyote is who faces himself finds himself. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. And we start this podcast off with Harry um, being a little bit late to Dr. Onoho in their therapy session. And right off the bat, Dr. Onoho says to Harry, you know, from the book, I want you to talk about your mother today. Bosch says, why? That has nothing to do with why I'm here, why I'm on leave. And then she responds, I think it's important. I think it would help us to get to know what's happening with you, what has made you take this private investigation of yours. This might explains a lot in your recent actions. I doubt it. What do you want to know? <laughs> you know, I like how Michael Connolly has now let Bosch accept Dr. Noho and what she is trying to do for him. And that whole line at the end, I doubt it, but what do you want to know? then just lets us also, to me, drop our guard. Because I already told you I like Dr. Noho, And she's able to solicit from Harry some very heartbreaking stories about being, quote-unquote, left behind the fence 
and what it meant when you were at the uh, the Department of Social Work or DPSS, especially him being an older kid, how hard it was for him to become adopted or at least go into a social home. And then you see Dr. Noho probing Harry a little bit, you know, reference to his mom. Can Bosch accept the fact that his mother was a prostitute? Harry said, no, I, I accept that. And then, we know, what about abandonment? And Harry says, no, nah, I kind of think I'm too old for that. But then, you know, Dr. Noho starts really, you know, keep on digging. And as Harry is finishing up the story about um, one foster parent wanted him to be a pitcher because he was left-handed, Dr. Noho says something to him from the book. These stories, Harry, she finally said, these stories that you tell me are heartbreaking in their own way. It makes me see the boy who became the man. It makes me see the death of the hole left by your mother's death. You know, you would have a lot to blame her for, and no one would blame you for doing it. He looked poignantly at her, composing a response. I don't blame her for anything. I blame the man who took her from me. You see, these are stories about me, not her. You can't get the feel for her. You can't know her like I did. All I know is she was doing all she could to get me out of there. She never stopped telling me that. She never stopped trying. She just ran out of time. And, you know, and that goes back to something Harry said in the Black uh, Ice. When he, was, um, when he came back from Vietnam, he is, and Harry came back from Vietnam, he petitioned the courts to look at his records. He was confronted with a voluminous amount of uh, petitions that Marjorie Lowe was filing trying to get him back. And he said by doing that, it felt spiritual. And I can see that. I mean, circumstantially, she couldn't take care of him. And, but that didn't stop her from trying to get him back. And lo- knowing that you're wanted by your mom and or your father, but specifically your mom as a little boy, you can see that was definitely, as he said, spiritual. And then Dr. Noho asked Harry to close his eyes and, you know, do the whole thing. You know, tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when you talk, when you think about your mom. And he tells of a story of when his mother visited him at uh, McLaren and the time that he got his tennis shoes taken. And this is the point of this particular podcast. I'm going to really encourage my listeners to go and read the lost chapter, 1961, that Michael Connolly put out. And as Bosch is telling his story about how the big kids took his shoes and how him and his mother was crying about that, you know, he says something that was really profound and really gets to the heart of, you should really start to see where Harry's anger comes from, from the book. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that the courts were wrong about her. That's the thing that bothers me. She was good to me, and they didn't see it. Anyway, I remember she promised me that she would do what she had to do, but she would get me out. But she never did. No, like I said, she ran out of time. I'm sorry. Bosch opened his eyes and looked at her. So am I. And then we see Bosch leaving Dr. Noho's office 
en route home. And then, as Michael Conley is apt to do, he introduces us to a particular artist that kind of sets the stage of what just transpired or what is about to transpire. And Bosch is searching for a radio station, and then he comes across Abby Lincoln's Songbird Alone. And when I read this book the first time, you know, I didn't really do this immerse interaction thing where as I come across, what I do now is as I'm rereading these books for this podcast, if I come across a little nugget like this, before I read any further or as soon as he puts it in there, I stop immediately. And I have like this, you know, maybe it's kind of like I'm thinking like a 3D effect and I'm listening to the song and that bird alone, that line that she says that Michael Connolly put in the book, I mean, it really sets the stage for what just happened at Dr. Noho's office from the book. Bird alone, flying high, flying through a clouded sky, sending mournful, soulful sounds, soaring over troubled grounds. I mean, boy, is that Harry Bosch right now in this particular book? And because I'm a cop, or retired cop, you know, I do digging. I dig, 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 dig. And an example of that is, again, this is, and I say it over and over again, it bears repeating, Michael Conley is not afraid to go there on different social issues. And if you did any research like I did on Abby Lincoln, you would see that she was in the civil rights movement. And remember, we don't like coincidences. Remember, I told you that, you know, everyone now, if you know anything about my podcast, I said it over and over again. As a law enforcement officer, we do not like coincidences. And for Michael Connolly, I mean, you would think on the surface, maybe it's the Bird Alone song that Michael Connolly put into this portion of the book. But I also think that Michael Connolly put Abby Lincoln in there, not just for the song Bird Alone, but also reference to her civil rights past. And I like the fact that Michael Connolly is an avid police champion, but he also has a progressive side to him. I know some people think, well, that's a conflict, but I, I honestly don't think it is a conflict. I kind of see that in myself. I, I have a progressive side to me, but I'm a law and order type of person, and I don't like fitting in boxes, and I think Michael Conley is showing us that he, that you can't put him in a box also. I haven't done this often on this podcast, so please indulge me a little bit. But, you know, I watched all of the Bosch series on Amazon, and I do like it. But one of the things that I find lacking is 
these little, I'm, I'm going to call these 3D effects of Harry and this vulnerability that comes out here right now in The Last uh, Coyote, this vulnerability. Because I don't remember every time so far Harry has gone to therapy is very adversarial. But this book right now, this portion of the chapter, Masha's interaction with Dr. Noho, just gives a much richer and deeper, more layered Harry Bosch. Now, again, I, I know it's unfair. I mean, this is, a, I think, a critic that all book readers, when they add, um, when authors do an adaptation to the silver screen of movies or now miniseries like on um, Amazon. But I think I'm not the only one that will possibly complain about how deep and layered this, made, this character is. And sometimes I feel as though it doesn't show it on the, on the series. Now, again, I, I love the Bosch series. I'm not saying I don't. I'm going to keep on watching it. And I encourage you guys to watch it. But as a book reader, that would be my only complaint. So back at home, Bosch uh, opens the box. Well, let's just back up first. Bosch does his ritual by parking a couple of blocks down um, the street from his home. And then he breaks into his own home so that no one can see that he's living in a condemned home. But he opens the box and he finds the, his mother's belongings. And just like we've seen him do before, he, and I t- again, I tell you guys, the cron sheet and the evidence sheets are vital to any criminal investigator. As he's going through the box, he kind of checks off a list. And again, this is why you have to touch and look at the evidence. You know, you can't, investigate. You can't be a, a cubicle commando investigating crimes. And this is one thing that happened with Bosch. He said something was bugging him. The lack of blood. You know, I mean, no blood on the undergarments, the shirt, the socks, the stockings. Only there was blood on the blouse. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. And Bosch had also remembered the autopsy described that the body had no lacerations. And if the body had no lacerations, where'd the blood come from? You know, he says he wanted to look at the crime scene and the autopsy photos, but he knew he couldn't do that. And also, okay, Michael, Michael Connolly, I'm, I'm talking to you directly. <laughs> you know, Bosch is going through this box and, you know, he's examining all the things about his mom and he, the, the clothes that she wore when she passed away. But Mr. Conley, did you actually really have to have the instrument that killed his mother? It was the belt that Bosch had gave her when he was a kid. <laughs> you already had us, you know, he grew up in a foster home. His mother was a prostitute. She passed away. Well, she got murdered, not passed away. And then we come to find out, yeah, the thing that possibly that, was the murder weapon, was the belt that he bought for her with the help of um, Catherine Register. But the belt that he gave her that she wore all the time when she came to visit him at McLaren, did you have to have that to be the murder weapon or possible murder weapon? Like, God damn. Stop. Yo, yo, hands up. Don't shoot. So after these revelations, Bosch just couldn't sit at home anymore. And he, find himself, he found himself driving around 
And one, he drove to the place where his mother was found um, behind that dumpster, found by, as we know now, um, Chief Irving as he was, when he was a patrol officer. Then Bosch leaves there and then takes a ride by the senior citizen home or the elderly home where Conklin resides. Now, remember, Conklin is an older guy, and we got information early on in the book that he was in an um, elderly home. So we see Bosch going by there. And then we see Bosch driving to Mattel's house. And, you know, I really, I want to stop here before we go any further to what happened when he gets, when Harry goes to Mattel's home. But I said it in prior podcasts that as a criminal investigator, you want to get the measure of your opponent. You want to see them, how they carry themselves. Um, do they have a certain area about themselves? Are they confident? Are they sneaky? Are they a very, uh, are they, or are they a bully? These little indescript attributes of your opponent can go a long way when it comes to outsmarting them so that you can lock them up later on. And so we see this happening here when Harry gets to Mattel house, uh, there's a party going on and he looks like he's part of the, he drives up and I guess a usher or a valet grabs his keys and say, good evening, sir. Uh, we'll take care of your car from here. And Bosch, you know, does something very reckless. And he goes in and pretends like he's Lieutenant Pounds. Now, I think Harry's crazy right now for doing this. I mean, let's remember, he, he's not armed. He's on uh, limited duty. He's supposed to be getting therapy. Dr. Noho has already warned him not to take on this investigation. And now he's going into Mattel's home where it's obvious that Mattel is hosting some type of uh, kickoff party for someone run for some type of public office. So Bosch, after a while, is approached by Mattel, and they're looking over the vista, and then they start doing this verbal judo with each other, trying to get a measurement of each other. But after a while, Mattel tires and then leaves. And Bosch then, acting on such a reckless impulse, takes the uh, news clip of Johnny Fox that he got from Keisha Russell concerning when uh, Johnny Fox had, uh, was killed by the hit and run. And he writes on the bottom of that news clip, what prior work experience got Johnny the job. And then he folded it twice. And then he put on the uh, top of the folded paper for Gord Mattel only. And he then gives it to a waitress telling her that Mattel is um, expecting this and you must give it to him immediately. And, you know, then Bosch goes to the signing table. You know, he had to sign in when he first got there as Harvey Pounds. And then he writes in the, uh, for the address, he writes Hollywood and Vista. Now remember Hollywood and Vista is the place where his mother's body was found. Then he scans the crowd and he finds Mattel reading the uh, note from the book. Bosch could tell by the direction of his eyes that he was studying the note scribbled on the bottom. Even with his phony tan, he seemed to Bosch to go pale. <laughs> and Bosch took this as his cue to leave. Uh, yeah. And so, no, he's leaving in a hurry and uh, 
Mattel, one of Mattel's security guys, tries to stop him, and Bosch decks him. And then he jumps into his car and speeds away. And so the next morning after Bosch, little trek to Mattel's and assaulting somebody, uh, he's, he's awakened by Hirsch. And but see, this is something that happens. What happens next is something that I've been preaching from the very beginning of the podcast. If you remember back in the Black Echo, I was telling you when, um, when FBI agent Rourke, Special Agent Rourke, was conducting his briefing and he kind of dismissively put aside the DPW people. And as I, I threw some shade at him then, a good investigator, and you see Bosch does this all the time. Bosch does it very well. You develop those civilian help, you know, because they're the glue that holds us together. And I do this all the time on this podcast. Listeners, if you are a law enforcement officer and you're listening to my voice, don't forget the civilian people in your uh, daily um, in- encounters because you never know what fruit they will bear. And just treating someone like Bosch treated Hirsch. And so we see um, Hirsch calls Bosch, wakes him up. And he tells him that, hey, look, the um, APHIS check didn't come back positive. Even though it didn't come back positive, the fact of the matter that we have this guy, Hirsch, coming out of his zone, not really wanting to be engaged with anyone, but just staring at his computer, doing what's on those four corners of the computer. He now has helped Bosch do, you know, an off-the-book search. And one line from this interaction between them two needs to be borne out here from the book. Hey, Hirsch. Yeah. It feels good, doesn't it? What's that? You did the right thing. You didn't get a match, but you did the right thing. I guess. No, no, no. Hirsch, I mean, that's just his personality. But most people want to do the right thing. And again, I'll, I'll move on. But cops, law enforcement people who are listening to my voice, don't forget your civilian support and let them know their information is just as valuable as anyone else's because your ultimate mission is to lock up the bad guy. So after Bosch finished his phone call with Hirsch, he comes to the realization that his investigation has pretty much hit a wall. and. To continue it, he's going to need a badge. And what Bosch says here, what Michael Conley says here through Bosch, is that a badge is much more formal than a gun. You know, a gun is for protection. Anyone can get a gun. But most people, when you go and interact with them, you flash your badge. That brings a level of authenticity. You know, and again, most people want to help the police. And I guess, well, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to drive this point home in this podcast. The civilians out there, most people want to do the right thing. Just what Hirsch just did. Most people want to help the police in the investigation. Because you know why? At some level, most people understand, if I help the police today when I'm not in need, then later on, if I am or a family member is in need, I hope someone can return a favor. So Bosch tells himself, I need a badge. Now, he knows he can't get his badge because, again, we're put on limited duty. They take your gun badge and ID folder. And most of the time, they give you what Bosch has here, like a temporary one, just to get you through the buildings and because you still got to perform some type of um, administrative function. So you have to be able to maneuver within 
the department. He he decides he's going to go and take Harvey Pounds's badge. So as we should be accustomed to now, Bosch is already has a plan in motion in his head. What is he going? To, what is he going to do, and how he's going to get um, Pounds's badge? Now he knows that Pounds goes to a command meeting on time all the time, and Pounds is the type of guy that really doesn't really pull his badge out because he is an administrator. He doesn't go on the street. He doesn't have any need to pull his badge out and do any investigative work. So he convinced himself that, hey, he can accomplish the mission and put the badge back before Pounds notices that it's uh, missing. And it gets us to this episode's question of the day. And the question of the day is as follows. During one of the many visits with Harry at McLaren's Youth Hall, Harry's mother, Marjorie Lowe, gave him a number of Hardy Boys books to read. Question, which of the two brothers did young Harry like best? Frank Hardy, logical and rational, or Joey Hardy, impulsive and reckless? And as of this podcast... 64% of you said that young Harry identifies with Frank Hardy, the more logical and rational individual, over Joey, who's more impulsive and reckless. And, you know, well, I put this out there for two reasons. One, to help Michael Conley and bring attention to the lost chapters that he put out there on his website concerning the, um, The Last Coyote. And two... I just finished showing you before we went to this break for the question of this day that Harry is reckless. He is impulsive. And listeners, what you have to understand that most of what Harry does is off of impulse and being reckless. And again, you got to watch out for Michael Conley. I told you guys, watch out for Michael Conley. He told you, he if you did a little bit of um, digging in that particular passage, he specifically said that young Harry liked Joey. So if you then dig up a little bit about Joey, and if you read it, you say, well, hell, that's Harry Bosch. So I did that for a reason. You get it. It's just one of those other, I'm telling you, Michael Conley makes you think. He has He's a criminal investigator at heart, and he's, gonna, he's not going to make it easy for you. You got to dig a little bit. And that's why, again, I enjoy doing this podcast and that's why I enjoy reading Michael Conley's books. So hats off to you, Michael Conley. And I feel like I'm rambling, so let's get back to the streets. As we come out of the question of the day, I interview a longtime friend of mine. If you listen to his story, and again, I'm just scratching the surface. And I did this, and again, I Thank you guys. I thank you listeners for these ideas because, again, a lot of listeners say, hey, Phil, we we love what you do. We love what you say. We love your insight, but give us more interviews. So I took it to heart. And so I went out there and I started putting feelers out to some of my friends. And I'm just not going to throw at you a bunch of cop stories. I'm trying to make the cop stories that I have relevant to the book. But I've wanted to give you guys 
someone who I found who has a lot of similarities to Harry Bosch. I found an individual who was a Vietnam vet who did tunnel, uh, was a tunnel rat, came out of Vietnam, went into the police department, and then became a detective. So without further ado, please enjoy the interview of Paul the Blade Sinclair. I'm sitting here with Paul Blade Sinclair. <laughs> so, Paul, um, as you know, I have a podcast. And in the podcast, the main character is a detective who was a Vietnam veteran who went to LAPD and then became a detective. And I wanted to interview you because a lot of similarities with this the main character that you have. And my listeners wanted me to interview more people, more cops. And I couldn't think of anyone better uh, than you because your life, I know part of your life, but the similarity that you were, that you went to Vietnam, that you came out of Vietnam and then you became an officer, then a detective, lines up with my main character. So if you can first uh, introduce yourself and, and talk to me about how you went to Vietnam. Okay. Uh, good morning. Uh, again, as you mentioned, my name is Paul Sinclair. There's only one. There's only one. And uh, I went to Vietnam in 1964 in October. Okay. I was uh, a volunteer draft E, meaning during that time frame they were drafting individuals, whether they wanted to go or not. Mm -hmm. into the military, uh, more specifically the Army and then Vietnam. Okay. But uh, since I felt that I had experienced all the traumatic drama that I could before I turned 18, dealing uh -huh. with personal issues at home, uh -huh. so I decided to go into the military. And one way of doing it is enlisting... I didn't want to enlist for three years, or okay. you can volunteer for the draft for two years. Okay. I said, that might be a better choice, so I'll go that route. Okay. And that's what I did. So. All right. So now when you went into the, um, you said you went to the Army. Yes. What part of Vietnam did you go? Did you... Went to a place called La Key, which is right outside of Saigon. And what, now I know a little bit about the uh, military, so what's MOS stand for? Military Occupational Specialty. In other words, your job title. Okay, and what was your job title? My job title at, at that time, was, along with all others that entered the military at the age of 18 or younger, is uh, infantry, which is MOS by numbers, 11, uh, Bravo, okay. 10. You, you are assigned that MOS until you finish basic training. Okay. Then you will go to an advanced training phase where they will more define your MOS or give you an opportunity to move from one MOS to another MOS. Now, did you what about our main our main character was a tunnel rat over in Vietnam? Okay. Did you ever experience meeting tunnel rats at all? Uh, tunnel rats is a nickname given to soldiers who climb through holes, uh -huh. small holes looking for the enemy. Right. I've only had to do that one time. You so actually had to you do could, it yourself. You could classify me as a, a one-time tunnel rat. 
Tulsa. <laughs> then they, they they go by size, of course. Yeah, you're you're at tall. At the time dude. I entered the military, I only weighed 128 pounds. So, but you're tall though. I'm tall, but still, you were like a toothpick. Right. So you could you could wiggle through some holes. So you actually did so, it. Okay, I did yeah. not know that about it. I didn't know you actually did it one time. A lot of things I don't talk about. <laughs> so, but no. Okay, well I got that was just real quickly off. You know, to, to deviate a little bit, how did you get picked to be a tunnel rat? I mean, with, uh, give me the scenario of what happened this one time. When you're in the infantry, you, you're subject to be exposed to all types of scenarios in which you're trying to search, seek, and destroy the enemy. Okay. So in, the, in those areas where I was, there were a lot of rubber trees and bushes like that. Okay. So, but there were a lot of little uh, caveats that would tunnel into this and that. So... Rather than throw a grenade in there and, yeah. and run and wait for it to explode, yeah. then sometimes we would send somebody in to right. look and see how extensive that tunnel is. So, so when you went through, was you or did you go by yourself or did you have a yeah. partner? You yeah. went by yourself. You go by yourself, but you have the platoon outside standing around okay. just in case something happens. And how'd you get picked? I mean, was you because you're a low band? They asked for volunteer because when you're young and dumb, you don't know what's up, so you're volunteering to do it. So yeah, I, I do it. <laughs> and based on my Boy Scout experience way back in the day, you know, you could climb cr climb trees, crawl on the ground, all that good stuff. So boom. then couple wow, with the, with the military training that they send you through, then you uh, you know you put all that together and you yeah I can do that. Oh my gosh, you Paul! It's a, it was a challenge, more so. Wow. Okay. So, wow. Okay. That's I, that's interesting because I didn't know that about you. So now, you said you only did it one time. That's all you needed to do it one time, and that was that's enough. It. One and done. <laughs> now, I do know one story you told me that I wanted, if you don't mind, let my listeners know about, was the time where you you gave me a scenario where something happened when you were under attack. Okay. Before that. Let me let me give you another scenario. Okay. Uh, not a scenario, a factual uh, situation that I was in. Once we arrived at our uh, proposed location mm -hmm. in Vietnam, mm -hmm. we uh, traveled by boat from San Francisco under the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay. Twenty-one days on the water. We traveled to Lu Lu Luzon Islands in the Philippines. Okay. That was a stop, and then from there we went to uh, Saigon. Okay. Oh, I went to Cameron Bay, where the ship is offloaded and everybody. It's like maybe 25,000 of us. Okay, so wow. Okay. From the ship, we went to uh, our in-processing station. From there, we went out to different, various locations in Vietnam. So okay. I just happened to go with the, with the section that went to La Key. Okay. And uh, once there, you're passing bodies and everything. You don't imagine seeing dead people out there on the road or whatever. But during that time frame, the only where well, you did see dead people, I mean, they were shot dead, boom, out there until until the uh, systems come by and clean them up, pick them up, and take them where they take dead people. Right. So anyway, I saw that, and then we went to our station. First thing they tell you to do is dig a foxhole. Right. That's how you're trained in the military, to dig a foxhole, because you never know when you may need to crawl into that foxhole to get out of the line of fire. Right. Because when people are shooting at you, you're going to duck for cover. Right. Foxhole is one of those things that we call, you know, cover, so you can return fire back to the enemy. Right. So that is what we did, and then we set up our little tents. Mm-hmm. Each soldier had a half a tent. Okay. But when you put two tents, two halves together, you got one whole tent. Got A little it. small tent. 
So those are like little Boy Scout tents. You crawl in under the bottom, crawl out, and that's where we stayed. Everybody had a position. Each platoon had a section that they put the tent up. We had a rear, what we call the rear, where you had the mess hall and all that good stuff. Right. We was out by the front line. And our mission, I never knew what our mission was till later on. And then I found out that the engineers was coming in and building an airstrip okay. there for the troops so they could resupply. Mm -hmm. And that's what our mission was, to protect the airfield. Okay. So as time progressed later on, then we, we would come under fire every now and then, you know, uh, under attack, small on fire. Right. So whenever we do that, then we would try to run for the foxhole. If we know it when we hear it, because it's very distinct sound, you you know when you ping, 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 everybody know to uh, head for cover. Got it. One thing you always carry with you, in addition to having your uniform and your boots on, mm -hmm. is your weapon. Okay. Your weapon, you ate, slept. You, that weapon was your left third arm. Right. So you didn't go anywhere without your weapon. Right. So when the rounds came in, boom, boom, I was out there. I was outside, uh, like, in our rear area, and something, I see the ground, boom, boom, boom. Right. I say, damn, look at that. I say, oh. So but the shooter was advancing his shots. So in other words, one here, one forward about 10 feet further, one okay. 10 feet further, 10 okay. feet further, getting closer to to anything out there. And I'm looking, the only one around is me. Right. I say, oh shit, they're getting closer to me. <laughs> okay. So when the rounds got kind of close and I, I got in my prone, not my prone position, a, a, a crouch, crouch okay. position mm -hmm. where you fire standing with your knees. Yes. I mean, you're kneeling. But you're not kneeling, you're, you're sitting down like you crouched down. Yes. And you got your weapon. They teach you how to shoot and all that good shit. So yes. I saw where it was coming from out of a rubber tree. Right. Across the little pond that was over there. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, man, he's trying to kill us. I said, yeah, I'm going to get his ass. So that's all I said was I took aim and uh, I fired one shot and nothing happened. So I moved my sight over a little bit more. Right. And he was, he was still shooting up toward me. And I moved over a little bit more. When I fired the second time, boom, I saw something fall out the tree. Okay. Bam. I say, oh, shit. I shot him. I didn't kill somebody. Got it. So because I wasn't there, you know, physically run up on him to look and check him out, I wasn't going across the pond. Yes. Because that stopped the fire from coming in. I said, yeah. And I told my squad sergeant that, yeah, yeah I, I returned fire. And he fell out of the tree. Right. He's over there somewhere. Right. He's the way it went. The only thing we said, well, if he's over there, then let him stay. Let him stay, let right. Let the animals eat him. So now, was, now, was it also a time where you were in the foxhole and you left the foxhole? Is this the same time where yeah. you No, nah, this is a different time frame. Okay. That was the first incident. The second time frame, second incident was one evening, my buddy and I, we were in our tent. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, we hear something come in like a whistle. When you hear that thing stop, you know it's blowing, it's something gonna blow up. Got it. So then next thing we looked out and then mortars was coming in, man. They were blowing, you know, they just landing on the ground. Mortars don't have a direction. They just go up in the air and come down. Got it. Come down. If you're in the way, you get hit. You get hit. So when they were coming in, we jumped out of our tents because there's no cover. Tent is like a piece of cloth. Yes. Over you. Keep the rain out, and that's all that's it. All that's good for you. And that's only for a certain while. Then it's then it becomes soaked. So <laughs> you um we heard that, we jumped out, 
Not jumped up, but we start crawling because yeah. you don't want to stand up and them rounds coming in because you get something to get hit. So we crawl to the foxhole, I guess about um, maybe 50 feet okay. to our foxhole because you didn't want to be too far away and you want to crawl. You want to get in that hole. Yes. The lower you are to the ground, the better your opportunity is. Got it. So we crawl to the, to the foxhole. I didn't get in the foxhole because I didn't have my shoes, my boots. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember a John Wayne movie way back when I was a kid. He said... Well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die with my boots on. <laughs> right. So I remember that. That okay. stuck with me forever. <laughs> okay. So I stopped, and my buddy continued on going, traveling to the foxhole. Right. I went back to the tent, grabbed my boots on. I didn't even tie them up. I just put them on. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then I turned around and started crawling back. Before I could get halfway to, that, to the foxhole, a round came in. Oh, wow. Dead center of the hole. And blew up. It exploded. It blew him up. So your your foxhole made yeah. it die. Blew him up. Wow, yeah, Paul. That's something I can't ever forget. I bet. And that's all. So all I could do was once once that the dust settled a little bit from that immediate round of going in and blowing up, I said, Steve, Steve. Okay. And no no response back, no nothing. I said, damn. I hope he's all right. I mean, so I didn't want to, I did not want to crawl to that hole. Definitely. But I was something just say crawl to the hole and look. Wow. So I low crawled to the hole. When I looked in that hole, only thing I saw was a hand, the wrist. The and that was the right wrist, the right hand. Okay. All this was everything else was gone. Wow. Just the hand in the foxhole. I called medic, medic. So they came back, they 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 pulled up some parts of him, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a whole body. Mm-hmm. I said, damn. I was I was two through then, I was shook up. With no shit. So that they the SARS pulled me back. Put me in the rear for the next thirty days to try mm-hmm. to try to regroup, and then by then after that, I was like fifteen days later. After the thirty, I was like forty five days later, I was shipped out. Oh, you were to come back to the states. So that that brings us to the next thing. Um, when you got shipped to the states, did you immediately join the police department? Why no. did you? Oh no. Oh, okay. I came back to the states and got off the airplane. They flew us back. Then by then they had advanced travel now. So. Now we, the guys are flying over and flying back. So okay. Went back, went back home, uh, stayed, stayed, uh, went back home and stayed. Uh, from there, 40, let me see, I think it was like three weeks later, I got a job okay. in uh, Newport News mm-hmm. in the shipyard. Okay. So I stayed there for a year, and I trying to adjust and put up with that. Oh, man, it was it was rough. But anyway... I managed to hang in there for a year and a half, and then I told him I was leaving. When you say it was rough, give my listeners right. a, a sense of what, how it was rough coming back. When Coming back, because you're accustomed to, you were over there for a whole year. They were firing, uh, shots fired, rounds going off. You're exposed out there every day. You don't know when something's going to come in your area and start blowing up places. Mm-hmm. You're going out on a fire team to go canvas the area, look for the enemy and shooting. Yeah. And I had other buddies to get killed. You know, all this time within the 13 months I was over there. Right. So you got all that to deal with. And then you're writing home to the parents and your mamas and your daddies and all that good stuff, dealing with all that. Right. Every day you got to be prepared to get in a firefight or defend yourself from an attack right. where we were. So right. that, that, it was every day. It's, every day. It wasn't no day off. So so making a transition from, from that to... Because they didn't have... It right. didn't sound like... like now, nowadays, it appears like the guys or the now um, um, uh, 
people who come back from war, they have a transition period. Right. They, they, you, back we, then, they didn't have no transition no, period. We, trans we didn't have anything. At least from a black soldier for the system, they didn't tell us anything. They, they didn't. Just, I just, when I came back from Vietnam, I had another six months to do in the military. I, mm -hmm. went, I went back. I was stationed in Fort Carson, Colorado. Mm -hmm. There was no adjustment period. You just went right back out. Then you got, went back into your field because by then I had a specialty MOS. Mm -hmm. That was 11 Charlie. Okay. Which is mortars. And uh, we had to play going to the war games after yeah. I come back from the war. Right. So it kind of, you know, it just right. didn't make sense. Uh, I stayed on post because mm -hmm. I didn't want to go out there and get in trouble. Right, 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 right. Because the least little thing would tick you off because. You lost a lot of friends. Definitely. And you had live ammunition. You had rounds, you had grenades, you had everything on you. Right. So it didn't take much to pull the pin, throw the damn thing, and go out the way. Say, so fuck so. it. Right. So when you came back from the shipyard, and I diverted you a little bit because you mm -hmm. said you were, um, you had a lot to deal yeah, with. you had to deal with that. that. And working on the civilian <clears> side, <throat> you have to deal with uh, people telling you what to do. Yeah. And then how to do. You don't have any skills other than... Fighting skills. Right. That's all you've got. Right. So nobody's trying to fight in the shipyard. They're trying to build a ship. Got it. So you had got to adjust it. from that, your attitude, and trying to work with coworkers. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, this thing. and then listen to how they are communicating with you. Mm -hmm. And this is back in the 60s now. You know right. how in the 60s they were, they, they were still discriminating. Got it. Even though I had been in the military and out. Mm -hmm. They were still discriminating. I said, this shit don't make no damn sense. No, discriminating to you as a being, being a black a man or, yes. or, or a soldier or both? Both. Black and prior soldier. Got it. So they, they just did not like that. Right. So I tried to get it out of my mind, out talking about it and all that good stuff. Right. So the next opportunity that I had from working in the shipyard, I thought I was fed up with that. Got it. I, I, could, I couldn't take that anymore because something's going to happen. So right. I left the shipyard... I joined, actually, I joined the fleet, the post office. You joined the post office first. Right. <laughs> that's that's, so, that's post, another well, answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that, to me, that was yeah, a whole different environment. Got it. So with that, and then dealing with that, I was always a, a quiet guy, worker, whatever. Yes. I don't, you know, that, that no one ever hit the wrong button. So, so you left the post office. What made you leave the post office for the police department? Uh, the retirement age. Regardless, retirement, the retirement system, regardless of age. Got it. Because when I joined the police department, 20 years later, I could retire. Right. I could not believe that. I mean, physically, I could retire. and said, yeah. But the hidden part of that is you can retire if you want, but you're going to find another job because that yeah, little yeah, retirement yeah, yeah, ain't yeah, yeah. enough to survive, to substantiate yourself. Right. Anyway, I just stayed. So then I joined the police department. So when you joined the police department, um, what what district did you go? What district did you okay. go? Uh, now, that's a whole nother story, too. Go ahead. Uh, got, I'm on. With the police, when you first joined the police department, and the reason I got, I went to the police department because my brother-in-law wanted to take the test. Okay. He did not want to take the test by himself. Okay. So he talked me into going with him <laughs> to take the test. Okay. So when we finished with the test, he didn't pass the test. <laughs> so I said, well, shit, I probably won't pass either. Then the guy said, well, you pass. And I said, oh, <laughs> shit. I said, I don't want to be a cop. He said, look, you can come in. You can come next week. We can send you to the wow. academy. 
I said, oh, no, no, you won't send me. Now, this was in August. Got it. I did not go into the academy until, until uh, December. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was just that, didn't want to do it. So but finally I did. Okay. Uh, when I went into the police department, not knowing that you run into discrimination there, too. Of course. I, I didn't know that. Right. I just naive, man, naive. So right. anyway, I ran into that. So I went through the academy and all that. Now, my very first assignment out of the academy was traffic division. Right. Oh, wow. My no, that was... My very first assignment was traffic division. So let me, let me stop you. But, but let me, let's just understand. That's a very... That's opposite. Normally, you got to go on patrol first before you go to yes. a specialized unit. For some reason, myself and one other person, as soon as we graduated from the academy, we went straight to traffic division. So... I, I never want to assume with my listeners, what were the duties of an average day traffic officer okay. in traffic division? Traffic was exclusively someone who dealt with traffic, anything associated with traffic, from writing tickets to accidents, investigations, to um, act to assisting accidents, to parades, mm -hmm. to back then doing blood runs back then. Mm -hmm. So we were tasked with doing all of that we we fought very very little crime. Got it. That wasn't our mission. Got it. Our mission was to keep traffic flowing. Mm -hmm. You know, if by any means necessary, keep the traffic going. That's your function. That's what you're supposed to do. Got it. And they had different sections within traffic division, the accident investigations of which I was a part of. Right. And the motorcycles, of which a lot of guys converted over to that. Right. Then they had the hit and run section, which people, when you have a hit and run accident, they would come out and investigate that to try to close that case. Right. So, and then you had the vehicular homicides and people kill people with vehicles and things of that nature. Got it. So that's what they did. Now, myself, I went to the traffic division, and this is why I said when they, they were discriminatory. Mm -hmm. When we left the academy and went straight to traffic division, as you mentioned earlier, it was a privilege uh, section to be in traffic division. Damn privilege right. Requirements where you had to be on the police department five years right. before you could be considered to go to traffic, transfer into traffic division. Right. And they sent myself, as I mentioned earlier, myself and another guy straight to traffic. Right. The first day we arrived there, when we went from the graduation to traffic, same day. Mm -hmm. We arrived there and... Desk Sergeant, he's blessing hard, he's gone now, but he had us recruits to sit in a chair right next to the wall because he told us that they made a mistake. Got it. We were going to a district. He just had to find out which one. Right. So y'all sat right there. We got there midday. Mm hmm That evening, around 4 o'clock. Mm hmm Then by, after he done made about 50 phone calls and the Whatever the phone calls he got, the last one they told him, no, they are assigned to traffic division. Wow. Now, because you spent, how, how, long, how much time did you spend as a, as a police officer? From You came on in 1970? 1969. 1969 on the police department. Mm -hmm. Why thought you, oh, when did you go to the, oh, when did you go to the Army? The Army of 1964 to 1967. Got it. And so then, in 69, until you retired from the police department the first time. You know, my listeners. Yeah. Well, it was well, only one time. Right. Yeah. Well, he retired and went. Okay, and but then I went to housing. Right. But yeah. so you came on in 69, and yeah. you re you retired 20 in years later in 98. No, no, 28 years later. 28 years later. Mm -hmm. Now, in that 
because I can spend all day, and this is not going to be your last time being on my podcast. So I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, give your whole life history. Um, because, but I, what I wanted to get my listeners to understand about you is that you could give what it was like back then yeah. on the police department and how policing has changed. And and I want to speed up a little bit to after you got out of track division, did you ever go to a district or did you always yes. stay in? Okay, what yes. district did you wind up going into? Sixth district. Okay, that's okay. You're the same district I went to. I yeah. didn't know that. Well, okay, so it went. So I was in the I was in the sixth district. I came out the academy in '89. Uh, okay, and so I guess I went to the academy '89, and so I was in in '90. I was in the sixth district. Okay. Well, by that time, you were gone. By that time, I was I was in Morris Division. By right. Then. So that, you see, that's Morris Division is the major narcotics division. Right. That's right. where that's where you, actually you and I met. So, how did you go from patrol? To mm-hmm. being, because you no, know, at the time was Morris Division a detective unit or was it an, was it an officers unit? No, detective unit. So how did you so. come leave patrol mm-hmm. and then go to Morris Division? Okay, let me back up a little yeah, bit. Please. In reference to the traffic division, how I transitioned from traffic to the district. The key word is downsizing. Okay. So that was the system mm-hmm. word of the day was downsizing. So they <laughs> downsized traffic division. And not by choice, mm-hmm. but by selection, I ended up going to the sixth district. Got it. Okay. And when we arrived at sixth district, they didn't. They, meaning the establishment administrative staff at sixth D, didn't know what to do with a traffic guy. Right. That's assigned to traffic division now. So what do we do? He, he, he just hit. That's all he does is traffic. So give him a car and let him do traffic in sixth district. Right. And that's what I did for a while. Okay. Then they decided. Well. No, well, he can do more than that, so let's put him in the section and let, let, let him be the police. Got it. So and then from there we transitioned to actually doing police work and major traffic stuff because they said, they meaning downtown, said mm-hmm. that they have a special person that's been trained in, in, uh, in the traffic division, so let him handle all this. So I had to run all over the district handling traffic in addition to doing patrol duties. God, wow. Well, they really didn't do so, really getting the other thing. Yeah, the, butt out the duck. Butt yeah. out the duck, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I said, you know what? So finally, it was decided that they asked, anybody want to go downtown for 30 days? Just a 30-day detail to, to do drugs. Well, just maybe about a couple months before that time, I got my first taste of drugs because uh, somebody called me in off the street and said, mm-hmm. look, we're, this is what we need you to do. Right. So I guess they figured because I was a military guy and had been on the police department a couple of years, then I could, could roll with it. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, well, buy some drugs. Said, buy some drugs. Go, right. Go to the counter and buy them. He said, no. <laughs> so you, tomorrow, wear your, wear your civilian clothes. So we're going to put you out there and we'll see what happens. So Okay. That didn't, and I, I didn't. was able to buy drugs, but then they said, well, what the guy looked like? I said, I don't know. <laughs> what the so, so you have to develop and learn right. what to do. So over the course of that following week, then you learn little things, and they, your, your investigators or detectives will tell you, make sure you look at this, look at that. Right. Here's the money, and make sure you give it to them. Look at the person you're giving it to and come back with a description. Right. So finally they did. I bought some drugs, gave them a look out, they went back and locked the guy out. Right. For a distribution. So I said, oh, oh, okay. So from there, from that little introduction at 6th mm-hmm. District, mm-hmm. they asked someone if they wanted to go down to Morrow's division. Mm-hmm. I said, 
anything to get out of the district. Got so it. I said, that's, well, that's, that's fine. I, I'll go down there for and see the worst, what's the worst thing that could happen. All they could do is send you back. Right. But I'm talking about 18 years later. 18 years later. <laughs> 18 years later, I retired. Now, because I know you, now you and I met when you, because you had a, a long career, like I said, 18 years in Morals Division, but you did a lot. Mm-hmm. And for my, for my listeners to understand, Morals Division turned into what they call major narcotics is there's a multitude of different facets of, of mm-hmm. crime and investigations. investigations and you yes. pretty much did it all when, you know, <laughs> you know, I know you did, like I said, you were at the DA task force. Yeah. I know you did. Were you an interdiction at one time? Did you do interdiction yeah, at no, one time? PMP. P, okay, which PMP? Yeah. I like, uh, uh, oh, prostitution I know, and perversion. Right, see. Yeah. So you did prostitution and perversion, um, uh, D, uh, D, DEA task force. Right, and then the asset force. And you were the asset force, the financial investigation unit. And that's where right. you and I met under the financial investigations yes. unit. Yes. And then you finished your career there. Mm-hmm. So, again, I don't want to, I'm not going to um, um, overdo it because you have a lot of information. And um, right now I'm in part of the book of where the, um, the main character has got suspended for. Uh, fighting his superior, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you? But n- these cops nowadays, you know. I, I was watching the news, and our department, somebody had filed a complaint that another officer pushed them, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that's just crazy that mm-hmm. that another mm-hmm. officer would file. Am I wrong with that assessment that that would never happen when you, especially the early days of your career? No, Mm-mm. because. As humans, humans are not all humans are not gonna get along anyway. Right. So you 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 push them to the breaking point, and then they explode. Right. They got less steam off. But as you recall, we never um, engaged each other with the thought to permanently injure or hurt. Now we just want to send you a message. Right. Right. (laughs) That's that's generally what's gonna happen. So the next time you you didn't go that way, right? So, right. You, know, you didn't like the person, but you didn't go that way. So eventually everything worked out because, as you know, as much discrimination that was out there, alive and well, in mm-hmm. the, within the police department, we seem to jail when it comes to assistance. Definitely. Now, you, now we I've witnessed some overzealous mm-hmm. officers in reference to that, but for the most part, we covered each other's back. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't, it was challenging, but not that severe. So, yes, we all, it just, it takes a special breed mm-hmm. to become a police officer anyway. Well, and, and one of the well, things, we had that. one of the things, one of my uh, interview, one of my old partners, he recognized my, the district that you and I went to mm-hmm. was not the easiest district. Now, he came, yeah, he went true. to 1D. Mm-hmm. Now, he claimed himself as being, and I'm throwing <laughs> shade at him right now, all well-rounded. Yeah, yeah we were soldiers, you yes, know. We, right. we, you, you know, we were soldiers. We, yes, we, you see, and you 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 act you become introduced to all facets of life, not just the bad guys mm-hmm. that was out there. You had to be you had to be a social worker. Yes. You had to be a, a community activist. Yes. You had to be um, not so much in the church, but you had to be part of that arena that will help diffuse a situation. Right. But it's not always knuckles and 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 batons and all that good shit. Right. Sometimes your conversation, your gift of gab, mm-hmm. saves a lot, and that 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 saved me a lot. Right, the gift of gab, right there. When they, you had, you talk your way out of a hostile situation, right, and I was able to do that a couple of times because 
I had an opportunity to be confronted with somebody back then. Right. Well, give me I a story. I think I only weighed 100 and, 100 and shit, maybe 40 pounds by then. I gained right. 20 pounds. So right. I said, man, I got a traffic, in traffic division, I got, I pulled this car over because, you know, traffic, the cars, they don't want to stop anyway because they consider traffic minor, minor right. infractions. So right. Stop this guy and told the guy, hey, you know, who I was, you have to give me your this or that. Right. He got out the car, yes, bigger, taller, mm -hmm. and no doubt stronger than I was. Okay. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm going to get my ass whooped now. So I said, well, listen, this is exactly what I told the guy. I said, first of all, I'm a police officer, as you can tell. Right. So you violated a traffic rule, mm -hmm. and all I want to do is get your driver's license, and I'm going to write you a ticket, mm -hmm. and then that's going to be the end of it right there. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to take it to the next level, that's fine. Yeah, you're a little larger than I am. Right. And I'm almost sure that physically you could probably beat me. Right. But what you're going to be confronted with is I got, uh, I got like 50 other brothers mm -hmm. out there in the same uniform. Mm -hmm. By the time they finish wailing on your ass, <laughs> and if you don't get my gun hand right. first, you're going to be shot. Right. So if all of that is worth you coming over here and wanting to attack me, then by all means, bring it on. Got it. But think about it, because your family is going to be the one that's going to be losing. Right. Not me, because I'm going I'm to tell you right now, all my training is coming out. Yeah, and right. I'm sure that I'm not going to shoot myself, but Definitely. I am going to shoot somebody. Definitely. So think about that for a second. And if you think it's worth all that, then go ahead. If not, right. then just give me your driver's license. And then we'll, we'll I do what I do, and you'll be on your way. Wow. He thought about it for about a second or a couple of seconds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Next thing I know, I got the driver's license. Right. Nervous as shit. Right. <laughs> but I wrote that ticket. <laughs> I gave him all his stuff back. And trust me, I got back in that car. And that time, we were on one channel. Okay. So, oh, boy, when you holler signal 13. Right, right, right. Man, and, and where was I? I had to think about where I was. Right, right. Sometimes you, you know where you are, but then you get confused mm -hmm. when you're dealing with a hostile, uh, potentially hostile situation. Now, because I, I brought this up in the podcast, and I'm, I'm sorry, listeners, but since I have Paul here, he can give more voice to it. Um, Back then, was the car was the radio mounted in the car, or was it the, was it the portable ones that we carried around later no, on? No, it was in the car. It was in the car. In the car. Okay. We didn't have portables then. So you actually went from the call boxes, pulling the call boxes yes. to the hard mounted in the car yeah. to then the portable. Mm -hmm. Wow. They were just winding down from the call boxes with the radios in the car. Got it. So you were out there, you couldn't mm -hmm. ask for help with the with the radio in hand. Man, no. You had to mm -hmm. make it back to the car if you needed it. You had to make it back. You had to struggle back to that car <laughs> and then get on the radio and holler for help. Right. I said, boy, the challenges are challenges. But somehow or another we weathered the storm and, and, right. and made it through, you know, without losing our lives. So so, so as a wrap-up here, um, what you see now, what the police have to deal with, uh, knowing what you know, could you or would you become a police officer? Oh, I'd do it all over again. Yes. You would do it again? Yes. Uh, what I see that's liking now is officers don't stand up and communicate with the perpetrator, violator, whatever they become involved in, because 
Everything starts with communication. Got it. They don't want to be cussed out. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be cussed at. Mm -hmm. As they say years ago, sticks and stones will break your bones. Right. But words will never hurt. Never hurt, right. You just have to let it go in one ear. Don't take it personal. Let it fly right. out the other ear. Right. Stay focused on your mission. Right. On what you would, what you stop the person for, what you would intend to do. Right. And it's over. Okay. So you would do it, you would do it again. I do it. Even with the body cameras and the the, the ultra scrutiny and the uh, uh, scrutiny that they that we're under. Okay. Uh, listeners, uh, Paul refused to retire. And, you know, he, <laughs> I, he, I retired. Mm -hmm. I really retired. Mm -hmm. Paul didn't retire for you know. Okay, so he retired from the from the army. Yeah. Then he, then he went to the police department, retired from the police department, yeah. Mm -hmm. Then instead of retiring, you put another 20 in to, with the housing PD. Yeah. So actually it was 28 <laughs> years, nine months. So I was about a year short of 50 years on the police within law enforcement itself. So actually, again, as I wrap it up, because our, our um, main character, and how old are you now, Paul? I'm 73. He, the main character, this day and age, because you are pretty much the same age as him, he's still out there working, you know? Okay. Well, now the, 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 the author has switched him over mm -hmm. and handed the baton off to a younger detective. Okay. But um, I always found you as a wealth of uh, knowledge, and like I said, we've known each other like since hell. Since your, come... your high school days. Right, right. Well, I came, I came, I came to Morals back then in Major College in 92, so I've known you since then. I know you said they, no, you were at the DA task force. I remember you yeah. in '92. You were at the DA task force. You were coming back from the DA task force, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So we met Paul. I met Paul back then, and you represent your generation well. Not just um, not just um, where you've been, but what you accomplished. And and listeners, um, as you remember, my last interviewee, he talked about his father was in the same generation with Paul. And as I can tell you right now, Paul was is a spit and shine type of guy. You know, you did not mess with uh, Paul when it came, especially in your uniform. You know, you shopping always your uniform was tight. Well, I always felt that you, regardless of where you are, is what you represent. Right. And how you represent is you have to take pride in what you're doing, and also remember your mission. Right. Which was to serve, protect and serve right. the people of the jurisdiction that you're in, regardless of what level of society they are, mm -hmm. from the uh, from the low-income-earning individuals mm -hmm. to the affluent-income-earning individuals. Mm -hmm. And it just thrilled my fancy to let individuals see, this is me. I was never overweight. So the uniform fit real nice and mm -hmm. tight, and I kept it that way. Mm -hmm. Had a large cleaning bill, but that's okay. <laughs> At least it paid off. And the military short taught you. No, actually, my uncle taught me. If you're gonna wear some shoes, keep them shine. Got it. Make your shoes look good, cause people will notice. And over the course of my career, they have taken notice. Right. When I wear a uniform, I represent from toes to the head. You got the nickname Blade. You want to tell me that story now or you want to wait for the next yeah. time? To be continued. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> well, well um, <laughs> listeners, we will end the podcast interview with Paul, the one and only Paul <laughs> Blade Sinclair, and we will get from him why they call him Blade later on. 
Thanks a lot, Paul. You're welcome. <laughs> And that gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts person. And my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person for The Last Coyote, chapter 17 through 20, is APHIS lab technician Brad Hirsch. And I think I've probably teed it up and gave it away a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to always say this. My most successes that came in law enforcement when I had a great civilian counterpart or cooperator. And Michael Connolly gives light to that here with Hirsch is a diehard person who does not want to help out Bosch unless it's in an official capacity. But he went outside his comfort zone and he helped Bosch, even though, even though the check was negative, he still did it. And as Bosch called him out, or he said, feels good, does it, uh, Hirsch. And that right there exemplifies what makes a good investigator. Getting the civilian people to buy in and help you out to do your investigation. So again, my everyone counts or no one counts person for The Last Coyote chapter 17 through 20 is uh, APHIS technician Brad Hirsch. concludes chapter 17 through 20 review of The Last Coyote. Boy, I hope you guys enjoyed Paul the Blade. We're going to call him the Blade. The Blade story. And believe me, we're going to get a lot more and many more. He has a lot more stories and a lot more insight that we can possibly tap into. So again, I'm never going to stop saying it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, I keep saying this podcast is evolving, it's growing, and I don't think it's, it's not just me, it's us. We're doing it together. So again, continue to go to Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And you know, as you have been doing, while you're there, please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. And again, I say it, comments, comments, comments. And those comments are fueling me 
to make this podcast better. So keep on with the comments, good or bad. You know how I feel about that. You know, just your interactions with me makes this podcast worth listening to. Because, I mean, I'm putting it out almost an hour. You guys are giving me an hour of your busy day. And I really, really appreciate that. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content. Again, when you get there, you find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. So next up on the Thin Blue Line, we will continue our deep dive into The Last Coyote, chapters 21 through 24. I'm Phil Parker, and I'm 10-7 for the remainder. <laughs>